everyone and welcome to the DMH Employment Group podcast. My name is Abigail Maino and this is the second in a three-part podcast on globalisation in the world of work. In this part two, we'll be looking at whether and to what extent employees should be allowed to work whilst abroad. So we'll be really be looking at whether employers uh, should allow and how they manage shorter term work from the from outside the UK, um, looking at some of the practicalities around it and what sort of policies should be in place or whether they should be in place at all and whether a formal or an in informal approach is to be preferred. In the session that follows, we'll look in more detail at some of the tax and legal implications um, around uh, working abroad. So this is really looking at kind of the corners of the pitch in terms of whether there are benefits and to what extent and how far employers should go in um, allowing uh, these types of requests. Um, I think we all know um, anecdotally or, or directly that these types of um, short-term requests have become um, more prevalent since since COVID, since the pandemic, where we've had more flexibility in how we work and employees may have already done some work from outside the UK, um, either through choice or through necessity as part of the pandemic. And it's being seen as an increasingly uh, a benefit that, that some employee, employers can offer um, in an increasingly tight labour market and where there's rising costs for employers in, in other um, environments um, and other and other sections. Um, so offering uh, flexibility in terms of where they work can be viewed as a low cost benefit to attracting and retaining talent. But how far should employers go um, with when allowing this and what should they consider? Um, and with me to discuss some of these points are Adam Williams, head of the immigration team at DMH Stallard. And since 2008, Adam's been assisting UK employers to get the most out of the UK immigration system. And he also regularly advises international businesses in the immigra immigration aspects of inward investment to the UK. And we've also got Simon Bellum, a partner in the employment team here at DMH Stallard. And Simon has over 30 years of experience in advising employers on a range of employment issues and has worked with clients to fine tune their global mobility offerings. So kicking off, Simon, if we look at working whilst on holiday, um, for example, if that's the request that comes in, are there any broad considerations? What are the broad considerations that employers um, need to have in mind, perhaps leaving out local law, law and tax implications at this stage, which we'll cover in more detail in the third session? Thanks, Abby. Yeah, I mean, I suppose the starting point is to think, well, is this a good idea? Um, you know, there, there could be a lot of advantages to allowing staff to take their laptops, mobile phones, work uh, whilst on holiday, but you do need to pause and say, is it a, a good idea and what are the potential downsides to it and, and what do we need to make sure is in place? Um, the reason I, I say you've got to think about whether or not it's a good idea is it's basically a human issue that everybody uh, needs rest. Um, the idea of going on holiday often, not always, but often, hopefully it will be to get some rest. And um, is it compatible with that to be allowing staff to um, go off with their laptops, as I say, and to, to be 
you know, focusing, worried, bothered by work issues. And you know, besides being a sort of basic human issue, um, there are some legal aspects to that as well. So if you think about working time regulations and the requirement that employees have their annual leave, um, if somebody is going on holiday, is taking that annual leave, but they are working, are they are actually on annual leave? Um, are there grey areas where people you know, might later on question, well, you know, did that actually count towards my holiday entitlement? Um, I think health and safety is uh, an important issue. You know, that's at two at two levels. One is is the the the, the well being issue. Uh, if somebody is working all the time. Is there a an implication in terms of their well-being? Might uh, they suffer as a result of not having those rest breaks? And um, you know, might there be a potential claim against the employer because the employer hasn't made sure that the employee did take their proper rest breaks? Um, at a different sort of level, you, employers owe obligations in terms of health and safety, in terms of the work environment. So there are all sorts of controls in relation to how somebody's workstation is set up, um, that it should be a, a suitable working environment. You know, when people take their kit on holiday, particularly for longer periods, you know, are they going to be working in a, a safe environment? Are there risks there? Um, I think you know, one of the one of the other things that an employee needs to think about is okay. Well, if we allow people to work whilst they're on holiday, they're outside of their normal working regime. Could there be some unintended consequences in terms of if we give that individual the flexibility to do that? Might there be a knock-on impact in terms of how we? have to consider other flexible working requests from other staff, which might not be in the context of holiday. So somebody might be saying, I want to work from home. And you know, how's it going to stack up if you say, no, you can't work from home when you allow other staff to work whilst they're on holiday. So yeah, it's the, the, the kind of law of unintended consequences. Um, mm. You've got to think some of those through. Um, on the technical side as well, there's um, data protection and data security. Data protection, as soon as you allow somebody to um, work outside the, outside of the UK and they take data outside of the UK, um, there's the possibility of um, compliance with relevant data protection legislation. Um, and data security is the other big and obvious one, you know, mm -hmm. people you know, you shudder to think, but you know, people on holiday you know, logging on in internet cafes, using public Wi-Fi, etc. Are you confident that whatever um, arrangements you've got in relation to data security, uh, when somebody is working at home or working in the office, uh, if effectively not going to be kind of ruined by risks that are taken whilst somebody's working whilst on holiday? Mm, yeah. So this, to me, will leave a lot of employers thinking, oh, gosh, where on the spectrum am I going to fall? You know, do we have a complete ban given that there are potential un 
unintended consequences. We've got health and safety, annual leave. Um, not many, but some may say, well, we'll just do, do, we'll just say yes to whatever employees want. But it seems to me that it points towards potentially some benefits of having a policy um, or some sort of parameters um, to track these sorts of issues. Adam, do you think that that is, is sensible? Uh, and what, what sort of questions do, do employers need to think about if they, if they, if they consider a, a policy or an, a more formal approach might be sensible to try and address some of these issues? Yeah, hi, Abby. I, I've, been, I've been reflecting on it, and I think it, um, the first thing I've thought about is just the sense checking as an employer, is, is there real value in this as a proposition? And thinking about coming to that issue, I think for most employers there really will be. You know, if you think about the context of a tight labour market, for lots of employers, the inability to get people with the right skills, etc. Maybe it's the value in being an employer of choice because you can attract the best talent because you're seen to be an employer that allows people to balance their work and personal life in this way. Mm. Um, Recognising Simon's point about but be careful that they don't then in hindsight say, yeah, but actually meant I never ever took holiday. But, you know, there's, there's lots of benefits to, to, to exploring and wanting to be seen to not have a closed door to this. But I think it's important to recognize that, um, well, firstly, different organizations will, will need to approach this issue, will inevitably approach this issue from different contexts in terms of their operations, Things like the availability of workers, how, how much of a, is this as a necessity because we can't get the people we need? The suitability of working remotely as regards some or all of your roles. Some organisations might say all of our roles can be done internationally, it doesn't matter. Others go, well, hardly any, if any, can. So employers need to work out where they sit in that sort of contextual bit and what works for them. And, and, and I think you hit the nail on the head with the reference to spectrum there. I think it's about recognising that as an organization they will fall somewhere on the spectrum between at one extreme having a completely untrammeled and unrestrained flexibility here and at the other a zero tolerance now most organizations are not going to fall at either end of those extremes but the question is where in the in-between do they sit um that requires this analysis that simon touched on and we can talk about that a bit more I'm sure about how you build a policy and approach, but should they have a policy? Uh, I think in the, I would say and stick my neck out and say in the vast majority of cases, I think yes, even if it's just informal in the sense of having a clear understanding of where they as an organization sit and want to sit on that spectrum uh, we discussed. Uh, and and in, in, in its, at its core, what they allow and don't allow. Now that then draws us into this question of um, the sort of questions you might need to to ask yourself. Um, there are there are so many, but I, I suppose the benefits of the policy is giving certainty on both sides. Um, when you've worked out the questions like, well, is it only certain regions or countries that we will allow this? You'll give certainty to people as to whether that is an issue or not under under the policy and what the employer's response is going to be. If you as an individual want to spend, do a working holiday in a far-flung region of South America compared to New York, 
where contextually there might be a very different framework of risk there in terms of data security, et cetera, et cetera. You know, so it, it, it can build certainty on both sides. I think also consistency of approach. Mm. Um, when you've got the policy, you've got something with which to consistently make decisions. And of course, we all know that um, it's inconsistency of approach normally rather than a different outcome for two different employees whose circumstances were actually different that creates this risk around um, unequal treatment grievances discrimination complaints where um, the the issue is I was in broadly the same process and situation but I got a different outcome to this colleague here so it's mm -hmm. actually the approach and we we've looked at that haven't we for a long time in the context of flexible working requests more generally where you are entitled as an employer to reject one request that looks very similar to another because you've thought through the issues consistently in each case but the parameters and the inputs on the other one meant it was a we can't we can't support and approve mm -hmm. this request right now whereas on the others they were different including actually someone has or two or three people have already been granted this sort of flexible working request so the context means we can't do it again so i'm afraid yeah. you're too late so and yeah, go on. yeah I, I was I was just going to say, I think that's a really important point, because when I think a lot of employers weigh up whether to have policies, some may think, well, is it a noose to hang ourselves with having a policy? Because does that mean mm. we can't say no mm. if we say, yes, you can have up to, I don't know, two weeks, a month, whatever, um, working abroad subject to these conditions? If they're all met, do we have to say yes? And I think it's really important that the policy gives enough flexibility there to say these are the broad things that we're going to consider and it might not be that on every occasion we can say yes or no um, because it is going to depend on on a multitude of factors and the context and the timing of the request if you've got you know a very senior individual who wants to tag on a few days to their holiday but they're needed for an in-person meeting because they're signing yeah. off on a on a big deal then that's going to inform your decision versus you know a potential potentially different circumstances so i think that's a really important point i would 100 percent agree because the policy otherwise then becomes a constraint on the employer mm. doesn't it mm. um and you want so i i think the, the the sort of baby bears porridge in my mind and of course just keeping in mind what i said initially that each employer will have its own approach to these things that needs to fit that organization but generally speaking the, the, the happy middle ground is something that gives clear parameters as to how these sorts of requests will be managed and how this issue will be managed, but doesn't box you in and become a become hostage to fortune. For reasons, mm -hmm. as you say, well, the policy says if X, Y, Z applies, I can go and work in so-and-so location for two weeks. And it doesn't say I have to give you X period of notice. So I'm going, even though it's now apparent that we've got our summit on so-and-so and it's absolutely critical that I'm in that physical location and I won't be now. Because policy says I can, so I'm going. So I think that's that's absolutely right. Um, I think there's other other issues. We talked about unintended consequences and Simon touched on, you know, could, could, could this have an impact on your domestic approach to flexible working? People going, oh, well, even in the domestic context where there's no international element, well, so-and-so was allowed to do their job from a beach in South America, so... I don't I don't accept that it's true that I can't do this in the flexible way that I'm suggesting. So there's there's unintended consequences there. There's also the issue around I, I think in many cases you will end up with different approaches to different 
sections of your workforce. Because mm. often certain roles will be more apt for international remote working than others. If, 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 if let's take the example of your office manager. So you're in the building dealing with you know, physical issues in the building. That is not going to be one that you can actually do in a meaningful way abroad, other than you're checking in remotely and making sure someone else in the office is doing what you would normally do when you're there. So that's very different to a, a more digital role where actually you're not you're not tied to any location in particular. So that, of course, can create feelings, maybe maybe we might say unjustified or illogical feelings, but feelings nonetheless of unfairness. Mm. You know, oh, again, it's it's the office managers. We don't get any of this benefit, do we? And those people in that role over there are all getting to go and work from wherever in the world, which actually is is purely about the nature of the role. But it puts the emphasis on, I think, uh, properly testing your thinking as an organisation about those issues. If if a proposition comes forward of that role can't be done internationally, really test it. Is that right? Let's be clear on why that is so that we're resilient to people going, mm -hmm. this is just that you are treating, you you, you, you favour those people over there in the organisation and they get a better deal. You want to feel that you haven't made assumptions that can be unravelled uh, when they're tested. Um, and the policy, I think that the key factors or issues in the policy, we come back to locations, are you going to limit it to certain regions and if so, why? And the periods of time. Mm. Um, you, you you know, um, uh, I don't want to, well, it takes us down another avenue probably in and of itself, but what are you going to put around is a key issue, your parameters in terms of how long you will in theory permit someone to work whilst abroad, because each country probably has a different broad tipping point into other areas of risk, which I'm sure we'll touch on in the third session about longer term placements mm. abroad or permanent placements abroad. Where are you going to sit as an organization as to what period of time you're comfortable with recognizing that any amount of time spent working whilst overseas can create these risks, but generally speaking, the risks increase the longer the person's there and the more they're mm. doing. Where are you going mm. to sit? Because there's no hard and fast answer that you could apply across the, the world. Um, and that can be one of the tricky issues. Which... Yeah, and, and and presumably that links back to some of the points that Simon flagged as well about, you know, backing annual leave and taking annual leave, health and safety concerns, the shorter the period of time, the likely yeah. chance that, that those risks will be reduced. Um, you know, because if someone's working from a dodgy chair in Spain yeah. for a couple of days, it's going to be presumably less of a risk from a health and safety perspective than if they're there for three months on that same chair. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know what Simon thinks of this, but it, in some ways, what we're talking about here is employers could have a choice between doing a risk assessment front loaded. So it looks at certain locations, it risk assesses them in principle, and then takes a view on in advance of someone wanting to go there. What is our attitude and approach to that location? Or it's doing in one form or another risk assessments on a case by case basis. Either way, you're looking at all these factors and potting them up on a I'm using metaphorically potentially, but totting them up on a chart and going, are we in red, amber, or green for this one? Essentially, yeah. I, I think the Ab is absolutely right that the the question of how long is really important there, isn't it? Because 
to me, there's a world of difference between somebody popping out you know, on holiday for a week and then having a look at uh, their emails from time to time. Compare that to a scenario where somebody's actually got a second home, they're, they're working from abroad for three months. You know, the, the level of assessment and management of risk, I think, is infinitely higher in the, that second scenario. So I, I think there, there has to be that element of realism in terms of the amount of time. I mean, on the question of whether or not we should have a policy, I mean, I, I think that the, the really important points that you're making are that there has to be a clarity of a, approach. So even if you don't necessarily have a policy, where all these things are, write, uh, are written down, where you've got your criteria for working out when we're going to say yes, when we're going to say no. You do need to, to do your thinking about these issues and work out the reasons why we're saying yes to some people and no to others. Because it's you know, a, a classic area where people won't necessarily be aggrieved about the way they've been dealt with until they realise that the way that they have been dealt with is different to the way in which a colleague has been dealt with. And that's yeah. when you begin to get people who feel that they've got a raw deal because somebody else was allowed to do it, they haven't. And um, so you, you, when you say you know, we protect the organisation by making sure that we take careful decisions in relation to these things and consider the issues carefully, then I think that's absolutely right. Um, that's the, the, going to be the best way of reducing risk to so make sure that you've thought through the relevant issues and you're able to say, well, yeah, this is why we said yes to one person, but no to another. Mm. Mm -hmm. yeah. And I think your, your, your point about second homes, um, I think probably just triggers something in my mind because I've had a few client queries along those sorts of lines leading into kind of more longer term requests. And this might look ahead to next session in a in a sense um but leaving out the tax and local law visa sort of side of things which i know i'm sure we will touch on in more detail in that session what happens do you think and perhaps coming to to you simon first and, and then adam when employees want to stay out in a particular country longer term so the holiday home situation um you know to you to use your your example simon um, where it goes from being a few days at the end of a holiday or, or looking at looking at emails now and again to actually I'd quite like on a you know on a more permanent basis for this to be three to six months of the year now um, because I've got my um, holiday home in, in Spain or wherever it might be. Um, what are the consequences from a practical perspective, let's say, rather than the legal tax visa issue? Um, from an employer's perspective when considering that types those types of requests what 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 would you say employers should should be thinking of from a from a logistical point of view well i you know it goes back to that initial question is this a good idea mm. um mm. you know you, you've got to recognize that the world's changed in terms of how people are able to carry out their work um remotely and that means that it is easier to, to work from abroad. Um, but you do need to ask yourself, okay, well, is it a great idea for, for the business? Um, mm. you know, what, what impact is it going to have on the individual's relationship with colleagues, the ability to do their job, 
um, you know, classic scenario is that the individual is finds it difficult to come in to attend meetings at short notice. How are you going to get around that problem? And the individual's reluctant to to come in um, for for important meetings with colleagues. Uh, the individual saying, "Okay, well, it's it's fine. I'll tune in remotely. Uh, I'll join them." In, meeting remotely is is that adequate is it fair on colleagues is it going to is it fair on the individual are they going to be able to do their job properly um and I, you know it's so there are all those issues in relation to is it a good idea is it going to impact on the individual's performance and they are against a, a, the background of an underlying legal point which is okay well what what does the individual's contract of employment say about where they work because you know the very few contracts of employment that um, before three four years ago included you know, the individual's home as their place of work. Yeah, fair enough. Some mm -hmm. people work from home from time to time, but their basic place of, of work would be the office or the factory or or, or wherever. Um, whereas now, what we're saying is that the individual's place of work is going to be changed fundamentally. They're they're going to be work. Uh, working from home and uh, the the basic contractual principles associated with that that if the individual's place of work is actually not at home not abroad then if their request to be able to go and work remotely isn't doesn't suit the, the business because we're worried as to whether or not they're going to be performing their job properly then at what point do we say no sorry you, you, your contract of employment says you work here Mm. Yeah, no, very interesting. Adam, do you have any any sort well, of practical considerations? I was just reflecting on what Simon was saying there. It, it made me think how important it is to you never capture every eventuality, but if you get into a scenario where you're permitting these sorts of trips to anticipate things like it going on longer than you'd planned, because that could happen for reasons beyond your control, like another pandemic, dare I mention it um as well as the individual deciding that they quite like this mm. and of course it's a bit like brexit no one agreed or wrote down what would happen if somebody wanted to leave when everybody signed up to being in the eu there's a, there's an element an argument to say you, you do need to anticipate and write down what will happen in in that eventuality at least in your policy approach or maybe the contract because you know you, you're going to struggle to get Let's say, Abby, you're the person who's gone off to work abroad and I'm your employer and you've come back to me and said, oh, either I can't because of the cir circumstances or I just want to stay here. So I'm not coming back. I'm not going to then be able to get you to sign up. Could you just sign this contract paragraph that says if you decide you're going to stay longer, I have the right to force you back whether you want to or not. You're definitely not going to sign up to it then. Mm. So shouldn't we be thinking about that in advance? So when let's track back to you coming and saying. Adam, I want to work in Spain for a month. And let's assume as an employer, I don't have, have kittens about what that might mean in terms of a fairly chunky time working in Spain. Can you do it? All the, all the bits that we'll touch on in session three. And I go, yes, you can. Shouldn't I be saying in clear, explicit terms, if for reasons outside of your control or because you decide you want to, this stay goes on longer than what's been agreed you agree that if we feel it's necessary you will come back mm. and we can demand that unilaterally and you still might say to me i'm not coming back 
but at least I've got a strong contractual back, backdrop to, to rely on. So it did, that did come to the fore listening to, to Simon there, because I mean, yeah, the, these are issues um, that could just pop up mm. uh, and I'm sure will pop up, um, you know, alongside things like who's going to pick up the costs of return trips if they weren't envisaged initially. Um, and this is, as you say, leaving aside the, the broader tax and local law mm. issues. Because I think a problem comes, well, in, in fact, I think I've had a client before who ended up in this situation. So it's it's actually not beyond the realms of possibility that even in a scenario where you've agreed someone can go abroad for a short period of time, lo and behold, they do actually say, I'm not coming back, but I can do my job here. So there's no need to terminate my employment. You could easily end up in a position where even though it was only ever intended to be a fortnight's arrangement, mm. you are left with your legal team, you or Simon, taking the call and going, well, if they physically won't come back um, and you don't want to be ex exposed to having someone employed by you out there and it doesn't work for you and you need to replace them, then you're getting into termination territory. Mm. So um, there are unavoidable risks, but I think it's that anticipating as much as you can the 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 curveballs that might get thrown at you yeah yeah and of course yeah. you know no one no one wants to be negative in these situations and probably yeah. as lawyers we're guilty of uh you know uh anticipating the worst in in these sorts of situations but you can certainly see how particularly from the employee side when they're suggesting these things there's a lot of yes yeah oh, absolutely i'll do this i'll do you know i'll yeah. come back if needed i'll you know you know saying yes to an awful lot of things and then as simon said you know if they then disagree that they need to to fly back for a meeting that that the company thinks is really important where previously they've said yeah i'll fly back on you know mm -hmm. at my own cost if needed you can see how there's going to be some could potentially be some disagreement yeah between the parties as to who who picks up as you said adam the airfare for coming back um yeah. whether it was a an absolutely essential meeting and so you know thinking about the practicalities of how you're going to continue the working relationship on a longer term basis it's much easier yeah. to manage for for a you know a, a few days or a, or a couple of weeks than the months um yeah can be very important yeah, I'm yeah just i mean it's so i was just going to say that I mean, it's, it's quite tempting to suggest that, you know, the simple route to solving some of these issues when we're not 100% certain how it's going to work out is for the employer to say, well, yes, we'll allow this, but it is um, subject to review and, you know, we make it very clear that if we decide that it's not working, then we as the employer can insist that you come back and, uh, and work from... Um, the office or, or factory location. However, the difficulty with that is that in the job market as it currently is, sometimes even if you have, as the employer has said, right, well, we've got the right to insist that you come back, you've got to think about the, uh, the, the impact on the employment relationship. Yeah. If the in individual uh, is going to be in high demand, if you can't do without them, how easy is it going to be to actually rely on that discretion and and insist that they come back um so yeah I, th I think you do need to as an employer think about okay well what are the implications how are we going to help to make it work um yeah. work effectively from everybody's perspective 
Yeah, and there's a risk in there. So I mean, it's, in some instances, you could be in a situation where it's precisely because the person is so hard to replace and because they're so valued that you want to be seen to be facilitating their desire to go and work abroad. But you need to recognise you're more exposed in terms of what I would I listen to what you said there and thinking, yeah, in some ways that's about the bargaining position that the employer can't afford for this person to stop to to to, to leave. That you you may actually find you're more exposed to um in reality having to allow and it's the thin end of the wedge and they it becomes something different so you know the, the double-edged sword in that regard and yeah. the only thing i was going to say is that having we were you know we got into quite a legalistic territory around the contract there and how important that is this is a very non-lawyers non-legalistic point but i think it's a bit like in the pandemic um experience of employers that there was an impact of, all, of everybody not being able to be together in the workplace that's less obvious and less tangible uh, in, in many settings around the benefits of being together in a space and working together. In different sectors, it formed in a different way, whether it's collegiality, whether it's witnessing how people are learning from others. And I think, you know, that still potentially for some employers has a very important factor in all this, even though it's hard to chart and measure. You're, you're getting that potentially to a greater extreme if you're saying, well, this team is made up of five people, all of whom are in different continents. You're not going to be at a point necessarily to the metric that shows why that is detrimental to our KPIs, if I get very kind of commercial about it. But there may be a sense that we, we all believe and know that it will have an impact on that. And in, in this team in particular, that is extremely important. And they're going to be the harder ones to you know unequivocally demonstrate to an employee but that you may decide as an organization really important part of what we do and this this team etc so we've got to so i think i was just mentioning you know there are those other less obvious intangible mm. factors yeah i think that's a really good point adam because sometimes these things aren't as you say measurable but they have an impact on the wider culture of the mm. organization and and, and the culture that the organisation wants to um, harness, develop and foster. Um, sometimes, you know, longer term remote working, whether it be working from home or abroad, is not conducive to having that collegiate um, environment. Yeah. That's been a very interesting conversation. Um, I think it's, it's definitely um, got me interested for the third uh, session in this series to look at at some of the visa um contractual and, and legal issues associated with with working abroad and that that globalization um piece and 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 i think for that um session we will be joined by um sanjuk de ray from menzies who's an expert in our uh, in tax um uh, issues uh, associated with working working abroad so that will be really really invaluable for our listeners I think um, the, the key takeaways from me I think from today's um, session were was really uh, well the headline point that Simon raised at the start was to, to, to actually pause and reflect on on whether it's a good idea you know individually or, or organizationally um, thinking about things like you know annual leave health and safety um, data security and also then you know Adam's um, point about having that, that 
clarity of approach and parameters about how requests are going to be dealt with that that set out a process but don't box you in as an employer um, to having to say yes to absolutely every, every request for a for a shorter term um, or longer term uh, request to, to work abroad and then the impact on the employment relationship and and the knock-on consequences of allowing potentially longer term um, remote working so really really useful um, as I say keep an eye out for for part three um, when it um, when it arrives um, when it's published and then um, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts from so this a Spotify Apple or Podbean but thank you very much for listening today and um, we look forward to, uh, to part three in the series Thank you.